we're going to read from three texts this morning. We're going to read from Matthew 28, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 12, and from Colossians chapter 2. And so, hear now the word of our God. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In our reading from 1 Corinthians 12, we read this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then finally from Colossians 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you who spoke the heavens and earth into existence by the very word of your mouth, would you be pleased to speak once again? You would open your very word to us by your servant's mouth, but especially by the illumination of your spirit, whose help we desperately need. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you look at that sermon outline, and it looks like a monkey got a hold of of my computer keyboard, all you need to really do is look at the three points and pretend everything else isn't there. But I'm giving you your notes for later, so you can look later and you've got a a host of sermon texts, some of which aren't even going to be referenced during the sermon, but they may be something that you want to study later. And so I made the decision, let's give it all to them this week. So there you are. Uh, but I, I'm convinced that preaching is a, a verbal form of communication, and so you don't have to look at that. You could look at that later. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to just lay that out there for you as we, as we start But one thing I want to say before we begin is that we introduced the idea of sacraments. Last week we we talked about the fact that sacraments are signs and seals of God's covenant. We, We talked about what it means for something to be a sign and for something to be a seal. And what we said, if you wanted to simplify it, is that something is a sign when it points to a thing other than itself. And the sacraments are a sign. And we also talked about how something is a seal in the sense that it confirms that God can be trusted to keep his promises in the covenant. And so we also, though, avoided getting too specific with each of the sacraments. And that's because scripture tells us a lot about each of the sacraments. And so today and next week, we're going to be focusing on the sacrament of baptism. I have a lot of experience with other traditions when it comes to baptism. My maternal grandparents were Lutherans, and my paternal grandparents were a mixed marriage of a Methodist and a member of the Friends Church, uh, who never in her whole life was baptized. 
And yet my parents were Nazarenes. And so when, my, when it came time to baptize me, um, make no mistake, they believed in believer's baptism. I was baptized the first time, I think around the age of, of nine. Um, and then I was baptized around the age of 13 or, or so because I professed faith in Jesus again. Um, my church had me baptized on the assumption that my first baptism wasn't legitimate. It wasn't real because in their minds I wasn't converted yet. Um, and then I became an atheist around the age of 14. That's a story for another, another time. I'm, I'm guessing 75% of you in this room have heard that story by now. I'm sure I'll have other opportunities to share it. And when I was 17, the Lord rescued me and changed my heart and, and drew me to himself and and saved me. And in my church's view, it was time for another baptism. And so I, I submitted to a, th- a third baptism. So I have, I have not been baptized since. I have no future plans for any more baptisms. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm telling you this so you know. I, I came from a tradition that believed that you should only baptize someone who's really saved. And if someone believes their previous baptism wasn't sincere, then in that sense, it makes sense to, to baptize again. And, and I also tell you this story because in part, I want to show you that what we believe has tangible impacts. It actually has a, an impact on our, our practice. And I also tell you that so that you know I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian position. I did not grow up in that at all. It was very foreign to me, actually. I'm very much a child of, of American evangelicalism in a lot of ways. And yet, uh, in my study of Scripture, I eventually intentionally sought out this denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And I did it because I became genuinely persuaded that the Bible teaches baptism, as I'm about to explain it to you, from the Scripture over the next two weeks. The view that I hold is the view that I learned from the Bible and that I saw practiced in the Presbyterian tradition. So that's why I came to it. I do not hold it because I was raised in it. In fact, uh, I could tell you stories about how upset my father was to find out I was even remotely interested in Presbyterianism, even at a younger age. You know, he he found a Westminster confession under my bed. Son, what is this? You know. Uh, I... I don't resent my upbringing, I, and I don't look down on it either. In fact, I'm grateful for it because, um, I, it because you know what it does? It keeps me from looking down on someone who differs with me on baptism. When, when you've held other positions and you've understood the other positions and you've, you've come from where other people are coming from, it's very hard to, to think badly of someone who disagrees with you. And, and that's where I find myself. Um, I know why I believed what I did when I did, and, and I don't have negative feelings toward any of you. I hope you know if you have a different conclusion than me on this subject. But my challenge to you is this. My challenge to you is that whatever your view is, don't hold it on the basis of a tradition. Don't hold it on the basis that this is what was done to you. Don't hold it on the basis that uh, this is the thing that seems the most normal to you. Be persuaded of it from the Bible. That is my, that's my challenge to you. And so for today, I want to introduce baptism as we see it in the scripture. Uh, I want you to see where it comes from. I want you to know how it's done from the scripture. And then finally, what does it mean? 
Uh, and maybe you're really eager for me to talk about uh, infant baptism. Why are you guys doing that? That's the thing that's really on my mind. I think we would be jumping the gun if we went there. And so next week we'll talk about that subject. So we're going to try to spread things out a little bit and keep things manageable. You don't want another point on this outline. I know you don't want another point on this outline. So we're going to do that next week. But our three points today are baptism's origin. Where does it come from? Baptism's application. How are we supposed to do it? And then baptism's meaning. What's it mean? Um, so first, we, we know a bit about baptism's origin. I, I, I'm not going to be exhaustive by any stretch. Uh, a historian would have a heyday with how simplistic I'm going to be here, but, but here goes anyway. In the Old Testament, we do not see an explicit doctrine of baptism. What we do see in the Old Testament is something that is important and very relevant. We see a doctrine of washing and cleansing for impurity. And that lays the groundwork for the meaning of baptism that comes later. You know, you see people being washed of their impurities in Scripture. You see moments like uh, Naaman, Naaman being washed in 2 Kings chapter 5, where he's washed with water and his uncleanness is removed. Uh, we see it in, in the book of Exodus that God instituted the, the bronze basin for washing near the tent of meeting. It was important that people be washed as they enter the presence of God. Um, we see it in the law for the cleansing of lepers. Um, the background of these events and, and events like them would have given first century Jews by the time of Jesus the impression that the application of water is symbolic of something, namely washing and cleansing from sin. So by the time you get to the New Testament and people are being baptized, uh, there is certainly a belief in place about what it means when you apply water to someone. What does it mean? It means washing and cleansing from impurity. We also have, this is very interesting. In fact, as I was working on this, I learned this. I did not know this before as I was working on it. We have extra biblical evidence that, that prior to the time of the New Testament, Gentiles were considered impure. Now, that's not the, the controversial part. We could guess that. But if a Gentile wanted to become a part of Israel, what would they do? Well, of course, they would be circumcised. Um, and we have historical evidence of that. But we also have evidence now that, that Gentiles were also baptized. So if you were a Jewish person and, and somebody wanted to become a Jew, then you would say, well, look, we have to circumcise you. And then what did they do? After seven days after their circumcision, they would be baptized. Um, we know they were doing that in the first century. They were doing this for converts to Judaism. Uh, we also know from the oldest rabbinic sources that they baptized even the smallest children of those who converted into Judaism. So when a Jewish person would convert, they would be, uh, be circumcised, they'd be baptized, and so would their children. Um, even their little girls would be baptized. So this is the, think of this as the cultural and practical situation into which John the Baptist comes. What does John the Baptist do? John is baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he was teaching a baptism for repentance among Jewish people, right? This is not converts. This is not Gentiles being baptized. He's calling Jewish people to respond in faith to the call to repent. And what are they doing when they're coming to the river? They're recognizing that they need to repent. They need to be washed themselves. And so what's happening is they're being washed, and as they're being washed, they're confessing themselves to be as unclean as Gentiles, right? They're, they're doing this practice that used to only be applied to a Gentile, really. 
And they're saying, we need this too. This is how unclean we have become. We need to be washed like the Gentiles. It's worth keeping in mind that even, even the baptism wasn't an end in itself. You know, the purpose of John's coming was not to administer baptism. He did it. Uh, but his, his coming, his, his calling really was to bear witness to the people of Israel regarding the Messiah. And so the preaching, the baptism, all of it is happening to, step, to set the stage for Jesus. That's what John the Baptist is doing. So then after Jesus begins his public ministry, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus did not personally baptize people. His disciples did baptize people. Um, we see this in John chapter 4. Only the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus' disciples baptized prior to the issuing of the Great Commission. If it wasn't for John chapter 4, we wouldn't realize that they were doing that, that they were actually baptizing people before he gives the Great Commission. But the Great Commission, we read it this morning, it's extremely relevant, it's very important for us because it is Jesus' direct command for what we should be doing in the world. And I'm going to read it once again because I want to say some things about it. So what Jesus, and just because Jesus said it, it's important. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, We could do a very fruitful exposition of this text. I am convinced you could do a great five-part sermon on this. So that's not happening this morning. Although we are are preaching through Matthew when we're not doing this series. And so maybe we'll get a five-part series on the Great Commission. Um, But I've done the math. It's years away. It's going to be a while going through Matthew. (laughs) At the rate we're going through Matthew, it will be. Um, But I, I just want you to notice this. Baptism is commanded by Jesus as something as essential to the Great Commission as the going It's as essential as the making disciples. It's as essential as teaching them to observe all that he commanded. Um, It is commanded by Jesus. And in all of this, there's no indication. There's no indication that the cleansing symbolism has changed, that now the, the things they've come to see the water being applied as don't make any sense anymore. Instead, um, baptism is still, even there, communicating this language of washing. And so in in part, I think it's fair to say that when the other New Testament authors like Paul talk about baptism as cleansing, that's very much in keeping with the prior understanding of what the application of water means. In other words, the water as a sign is a type of language, right? It's communicating something. And in that culture, the language of water was a language of washing. So let that's that's a very quick look at baptism's origin. That's sort of the background of it. That's the, the command to do it. But the other question is, how are we supposed to do it? Um, I mentioned my grandmother. My grandmother grew up in the Quaker church. In the Quaker church, they did not do baptism. They didn't believe in signs at all. Um, I think I've told the story before that she was very embarrassed because she was not a real Quaker. Because when my grandpa married her, she had a wedding ring. And real Quakers don't have wedding rings. And so the other ladies looked askance at my grandmother because of her wedding ring. Um, so here's the thing. This is the part where I would talk about, hey, I need to make the case that baptism is important. 
I'm not going to make that case. I don't think. I think you need to speak to your own context. I don't think that this is a church that needs to be told that baptism is important. And so because of that, I want to move right to the question of application. How are we supposed to do it? How are we supposed to apply baptism to somebody? Well, the scripture gives us some indications. In fact, it gives some really clear indications. Um, First, we should use water. I don't know if that is uh, a controversial thing to say or not, but I I think it's important that we say it. Um, You notice in Acts chapter 8 that the, the Ethiopian eunuch... He hears the gospel from, from Philip. He, he sees uh, the gospel from the book of Isaiah, and, and he believes in Christ. And then he says, as they're traveling along the road, he says, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Um, there is this recognition that the essential element needed for baptism is right there. It's right there in the water. And, and water, of course conveys something. It means something. It means washing. It means cleansing. And so this man says, of course, I need to be baptized. Um, Again, water is a sign. It makes you think of something other than itself. What does it make you think of? It makes you think of washing. It makes you think of cleansing. Um, If you have water poured on you, then your sweat runs off and the dirt runs off that you've been collecting. And so, of course, being washed is something that you immediately think of when you apply water to somebody. And so that's the first essential element. You really should use water. Now, I have heard tales of uh, desert wanderers who applied baptism by pouring sand and dirt upon another person. And I don't know how prevalent that was in the ancient world, but I have heard that it was practiced because, well, if you live in a desert, baptizing somebody is really, really, really difficult. And so in some cases, they use dirt. Uh... I don't have much comment on that except to say we won't be doing that here. So um, (laughs) we know that water is necessary for baptism. It's the instruction that we're given. Um, I don't really know that anyone has a problem with using water. um, But how is it to be applied? This is a a harder question and probably a little more of a fiery issue, right? I will give you my answer and then I'll try to make the case very briefly to sum it up. Baptism requires the application of water in some way. Somehow the water has to get to the person. Um, How is it to be applied? How are you supposed to apply it? Well, it can be applied by pouring on the head of the person. It can be applied by sprinkling water on the person. Uh, Or, as is very common in many evangelical churches, it can be applied by immersing the person under the water. Um, there is a, that's a bit more controversial, right? Scripturally speaking, what you see is people baptizing, and you do not see explicit descriptions of what is involved. And my argument would be that, as we just saw a moment ago, the important factor to the apostles is water, not so much how much water is applied. And so my argument, and I think the position of, of our church, the Westminster Divines, was that the application of water matters The method of applying the water is of secondary importance. So we don't have a big baptismal here at the church. Uh, You can see it down there. It's it's adorable. Uh, We don't have even our smallest babies probably cannot be fully immersed in our tiny little baptismal. Um, And so we don't do that here. We don't dunk people here uh, because we're convinced that the water is what matters. 
not the amount of water, not the quantity of water. Uh, it's not immersion that is important. It's the water. And so we do baptism by pouring water. Uh, some folks do insist, and, and I would be very surprised if, if um, some of you didn't come from this background. It's the background I came from. They insist you have to be fully immersed. If you're not fully immersed, then you haven't been baptized. Uh, in fact, if you tell somebody, well, I was sprinkled, then, the, then in some churches they'll say, we need to rebaptize you. You weren't actually baptized. I actually think that's a very hard argument to make. That's a more challenging argument to make than the argument that we need water somehow. It's a, it's a tighter argument to say, no, you don't just need water. It's got to be put upon you or done to you in a certain quantity. That's a harder argument to make, I think. Um, the biblical word for baptism, baptizo, can indeed be translated legitimately as cover or dip. So if you went to classical Greek, classical Greek and the Greek of the New Testament are, are virtually different languages. When I learned Greek uh, in seminary, I did not learn classical Greek. I, I couldn't read Plato in the original language. Right? I couldn't read uh, some of the, the uh, ancient philosophers in their original languages because Koine Greek and classical Greek, even though they're close to each other, they're not the same thing. Um, but in the Greek, closer to the New Testament time, that was called Koine Greek, the word didn't just mean to cover or dip, it meant washing or cleansing. Now, I'll show you a few places in the New Testament where that can only be the case. In Mark 7.4, it says that the Pharisees did not eat in the marketplace until they had baptized. So if you go to the Greek, you look at that, the word there is the word baptize. Now, I don't think very many people believe that every time the Pharisees went to eat, that they found a body of water, fully submerged themselves, and then they came out, and then they were like, now I can eat. Uh, instead, they were talking about washing themselves. They're talking about washing. So they, they don't go to the marketplace, and they don't eat until they've washed themselves. Um, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10 says that the ceremonial law dealt with foods and drinks and various baptisms. Again, I'm translating what we often say, and I'm giving you the Greek word there. It says, the, the law dealt with food and drink and various baptisms. And again, no matter what your English translation is, I, I'm pr pretty sure that all of them translate that word as washing. Why is that? Because by the time of the New Testament, the word had a, a reference to ritual purification. The word baptizo baptize means washing. So in the New Testament, the command to baptize people is not a command to dunk them. Um, it's a command to wash them. Now again, this matches with the practices of the Jews. Um, it, now, one, now somebody might say, wait a minute, I know of a place. I know of a place where they did the dunking. Where is it done? Mark chapter 1 verse 10 it says Jesus was baptized, and then it says it, he came up out of the water. And some folks say, look, that's proof Jesus was fully immersed. He came up out of the water. What else could it possibly mean? Now, I'll say before I have a response to this, that if I found out Jesus was fully immersed, it actually wouldn't do anything to what I've been saying about the importance of water being the emphasis. But let's just go with this for a moment. Let's say it's really important that we figure out exactly how Jesus was baptized. I want to actually ask you to look more closely at that text. The verse is Mark 1.10. You can go there in your Bible if you want, but 
but you're going to get frustrated because I'm about to take you to Acts chapter 8. Um, if you look very closely at that text, you will actually see that it is ambiguous how Jesus was baptized. To come up out of the water could mean that somebody is fully immersed and they have broken through the surface of the water. Maybe that's what happened here. Maybe Jesus comes through the surface of the water after being fully immersed by John the Baptist. But there's another place where this exact same thing happens, and I can show you that that's not what's taking place. If you look at Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch has just been converted. He has told Philip, I need to be baptized. Philip has said, look, let's go. And so in Acts 8.39, Philip baptizes the eunuch. And in that text, what does it say? It says, they came up out of the water. And then Philip was snatched away. Now I want you to notice, it does not say the eunuch came up out of the water. It doesn't say he came up out of the water. It uses the plural. So they both come up out of the water. Also Philip. Philip comes up out of the water And then Philip is snatched away. He's taken away. (coughs) Why am I pointing this out? Because the eunuch was baptized, but they both came up out of the water. So what does it mean? Coming up out of the water, in this case, in Acts 8.39, is not a reference to being fully submerged. It's a reference to reaching the shore. It's a reference to exiting the water. It's a reference to exiting the body of the water. Uh, which they both did after the baptism was completed. And so after reaching the shore, after exiting the water, Philip is snatched away. I think that's the only way of understanding it because Philip wasn't baptized a second time by the eunuch. The eunuch is baptized. Um, The eunuch may have been immersed, but here's what it does. The text leaves it ambiguous because what? It's what I've been saying already. The water is what matters. The water is what's mentioned because the water is what matters. The mode is not what matters. So the writers of the text leave it ambiguous. The same thing you could say is happening in Matthew 3 with Jesus' baptism and Mark chapter 1 with Jesus' baptism. Jesus may have been baptized by immersion, but but to come up out of the water we, we know can mean to just return to the shore. Uh, My argument is not that he wasn't immersed. My argument is that the authors of Scripture don't care. They don't care. And so they don't give you the information that we probably really crave. We're really craving that. We really want him to get into the the nitty-gritty and the details so that we can follow it exactly. And they say, he had water applied to him. That's what we know. Um, The earliest paintings that we have of a Christian baptism is of a person standing for their baptism. Uh, it's not an immersion baptism. It isn't uh, an immersion baptism. It's on the catacombs of Rome. Uh, you have paintings of people being baptized, and they're standing, and the water is coming down on them. Um, that I am not going to argue that immersion baptisms didn't happen. They, they did happen. In fact, there were times when it went back and forth when it seems that more people were being immersed There were other times when more people were having water poured on them. But it it looks, from my own study of history, it looks like just a a break even. It looks like all kinds of practices were done. Um, Both practices seem to be going on in the early church. Now, here's one more thing about the immersion baptism. Some people say, look, you have to have immersion because Romans chapter 6, doesn't it say that we have to? What does Romans 6 say? It says, 
all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We have to have this picture of death. And the only way that baptism can be applied that can convey death is if we're laid down and then raised back up again. Like, like as if we were buried underground. But you'll notice Romans 6 doesn't mention immersion. It only speaks of baptism as a way of illustrating our death in Jesus. Now, it, it may speak of death better in our own context for somebody to go completely under a surface and then come back up. After all, in the Western world, it's more common for people to be buried in the ground. Um, it's very common for us to be buried in the ground. Um, I think in our own day, making the argument that baptism illustrates death communicates really well, that immersion conveys death really well. But in a, a Jewish context, that's not how they did it. People were buried in family catacombs and family tombs. They were buried in the sides of cliffs. They were buried in caves. Um, not six feet under, like is our practice. And so I think for a Jewish person, believe it or not, sprinkling actually would have represented death much more clearly and much more effectively. Why? They're used to the ceremonial law. They're used to the book of Leviticus. They are used to animal sacrifice. What happens in the Levitical law after the animal is slaughtered and it has been killed? The blood offering, what happens? They sprinkle it over the altar. The blood is sprinkled all around the altar. And what is it doing? The idea is that the worshiper is being cleansed. His sin is being washed away by the death of this animal. And so at once... As you're there, as the worshiper, you've seen this animal slaughtered on your behalf, and then you see the, the priest, you see that Levite walk around, and he's sprinkling the blood around the altar, and what are you thinking? This is me. I'm being cleansed. I'm being washed. I'm being made right with God. Like, that's the picture that you're getting there. And so when Paul is talking about, about death there, I would submit that a Jewish person is much more going to understand sprinkling as conveying death, not being buried six feet under the ground and then raised back up out of the ground again. So I think it takes a, mind sh a, a, a mental shift away from sort of our modern American context where everybody's buried, where we have uh, cemeteries full of bodies. Uh, and instead, we have to think, in a sense, like a Jewish person, what would look like death to a Jewish person? And nothing looks more like death than sprinkling because they see it, it's part of their ceremonies, it's part of what it means to be forgiven. Now, just so I'm not misunderstand, I think baptisms are valid, whether pouring or immersing or sprinkling. I was fully immersed, my wife was fully immersed, my children were not. But we are all equally baptized. You know, I'm not more baptized than they are. Um, by the way, if the, actually, I'm more baptized than any of you probably. But <laughs> not in the same sense, though. But, but, by the way, if this point especially grips you, I just want you to know I wrote a whole article about this, so there's more if you just want to go down that rabbit hole. But we know that we need water. We know that the water needs to be applied. And next I want you to see how do you baptize. You baptize in the Trinitarian name. Uh, this is the instruction that, that uh, Jesus gives in Matthew 28, 19. He says, we must baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is very explicit about this. Um, and yet I think somebody might actually rightly point out that the disciples in Acts chapter 2 do something seemingly a little different. What do they do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And then you go to Acts chapter 10, and it says that they should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So which is it? Do you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, or do you need to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Uh, My answer is that it's both as long as you mean the right thing. Um, I really don't know of a reason why uh, someone who believes in the Trinity would do a baptism and not say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But I have heard of examples of people who were baptized in the name of Jesus in a Trinitarian church, and they want to know now, do I need to be rebaptized? Did I not get the right baptism? Did they do it wrong? And that's a challenging question. Uh, in what I have looked at, I have gone through the history of good commentaries on the subject of baptism, and, and I have gone back and forth on this originally. I thought, why, what reason could you have for not using the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And yet I have seen men that I highly respect, including Herman Bovink, who actually give the answer that I have come around to. And I, I hope you'll be persuaded by this as well, but if not, uh, we can have great conversations afterward. It is less important that they say the exact right wording than that they have the right meaning. So I would say this, baptism should be done in a context where the Trinity is taught and affirmed and rejoiced in and upheld. And if the name of Jesus is, is, is given, it should be understood in a Trinitarian sense. So I've known some who were baptized in Trinitarian churches, and for some reason they didn't say it. They said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. It seems clear to me that Jesus wants us to baptize in the name of all three persons. That's his explicit instruction. But if this happened, that they didn't say the three names, I think we would call it an irregular Trinitarian baptism. That's how we would think of it. I don't think there's a good reason to avoid the Trinitarian formula, but I think it would make the most sense to look at it as an irregular situation, not an invalid baptism, not something that needs to be done again. Um, In the PCA, of course, we say the name of all three persons. It's in our book of church order. We should all be saying the three names as we baptize. But the point here is that the names of all three persons are placed upon us, and we are marked by God in our baptism. And so baptism is, 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 is about who we are and who we belong to. And if we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, even if the wording is wrong, we, are still, we still belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's my, there's my answer. Do the three names, and if you don't, it's kind of naughty, but we're not going to, to say that it's a disaster. <laughs> By the way, life in ministry is just messy. Someone will come to you and they'll have these kind of stories. You have to think about them. Um, life is not always tidy. Um, now, my last point that I want to mention here is that they should be done once. Baptism should be done once. Uh, there should be water. It should be applied somehow in the Trinitarian name. But one more feature of the application of baptism is that it should be done once. That's what Ephesians 4, 5 says. It says, there is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Um, I won't delve too deeply into this, but if someone has received the sign of of baptism, we should not so subjectivize the baptism that we make the truth of it contingent on the mental and spiritual state of the person as they receive it. So 
I, I mentioned over and over already my story. But we're going to see next week that baptism is less conditioned on the recipient than it is on the God who is doing the baptism. Baptism is about God and what he is doing, marking us out for himself. And so there is, there's no need for more than one baptism. It, it should be, just be applied once. Now, part of the discussion of application, of course, leads to the big question, who are the recipients? Well, guess what? You get a cliffhanger this week. So we'll come back next week, uh, and we will do that. You know, I, I think if we did it this week, then no one would come back next week. So I'm doing it, going to save it for next week. I don't actually think that's true. You'd all be here. Now, so we've seen baptism's origin. We've seen where it came from. We see, we've seen how it should be applied. The third today, we come to the question of baptism's meaning. Why do we do it? Other than obedience to Jesus, why, why do we do it? What is the point? Why did Jesus want us to do this thing where we, where we put water on somebody? Why, why do that? Well, Scripture teaches us the meaning of baptism in a number of places. In fact, I can guarantee you that the things I've listed here are not exhaustive. You can find so many texts in Scripture that bring light to baptism, that highlight what it means. Um, so I hope that you are going to forgive my brevity. I know you'll forgive my brevity. Um, feel free to write questions you might have down and send them to me or give them to me or ask me afterwards. Um, the elders and I are eager to talk about these things with you. Um, but the first thing I want you to see is that baptism represents inclusion in the visible church. There are a few ways that you see this in the Bible. One is simply common sense. When someone is baptized, it's a visible way of seeing something that was already true of them. Right? So when, a, when an adult is baptized upon profession of faith, their baptism means that they have professed faith. Uh, it's a prior condition that explains why they are receiving baptism. When a child is baptized, I'm cutting ahead a little to next week, but when a child is baptized, it says something about a prior condition. It says that they are a member of Christ's church because their parents are members of Christ's church by faith. So in, in every case, we don't just give baptism to just anybody. Baptism is given to those who are members of the covenant. So in all cases, though, baptism is preceded by some condition. Something has to happen for the person to be baptized. Um, this is the exact same function that circum circumcision used to perform. And, and I, if I might be simplistic about a text that we're going to look at more, more deeply next week, Colossians 2, 11 and 12 teaches that baptism now takes the place of circumcision. So you have that older identifier that someone was part of the covenant of grace it's a very visible thing. It's something that you can't miss. Um, you know, it's something this person will see for the rest of their life. Um, it's a bloodless sign, though, now. Now it's still a visible sign, but it's also a bloodless sign. If someone is baptized, there is something definitive about that. There is something real about that. There is something that you can't just subjectivize it away. He was baptized. The other scriptures, uh, there are other scriptures that teach that baptism is how someone becomes part of the visible church you have 1 Corinthians 12, 23. It says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So the point being made by Paul there is that when we were baptized, we were baptized into a particular body. What was that body? The body of Jews and Gentiles who make up Jesus' church. All the other baptized people. That's what he's saying. All of us get baptized 
and in that we become part of a body. Um, Notice we baptize based on a person's profession and based on a person's status as a child of professing believers. And so this means that in the church you're going to have people who aren't actually saved, they're not actually regenerate, but they may have even professed faith. You'll have others who have been baptized that we call non-communing members. They've been baptized, but they haven't made their profession of faith yet. And so we don't believe that baptism is meant to be a definitive statement of salvation. It is not a definitive statement of salvation. We believe that baptism means that this person is a part of the visible body of Christ, which is not the exact same thing as being among the number of the elect. Not necessarily. Um, I keep saying this more next week. There's no way to separate these completely from each other. But one of the implications of this is that the church is, by God's design, a mixed body with those who are genuine believers alongside of those who are not yet believers or alongside of those who even make false professions of faith. The church is a place where all of those types of people are here together in one body and we're all identified as part of the same church, even though we each have maybe some different status that God knows, right? God knows those who are his. Um, But this is always the case. This is always the case that the church is a mixed body. Even if your church only baptizes those who profess faith, there are still going to be false professions mixed into the church. So your church is going to be a mixed body no matter what, even if you say we're only going to baptize those who make professions of faith. We are bound to have false professions among us. That's simply a reality of this fallen world and the nature of the church. Um, So the way to think of this is that all baptism includes what we call a judgment of charity. In neither case can we have a perfect, pure church that we can be sure only includes believers. Um, The plan of Jesus is actually for that not to be the case. Instead, Jesus gives us the parable of the wheat and the tares. The illustration is of the church where we grow up alongside of one another, and on the last day, God in his goodness and in his wisdom and in his judgment separates them. All we can do is give a charitable judgment to these things. In addition to membership in the visible church, baptism means something else. It also means washing from sin. I mentioned this already, so I won't belabor it. But throughout Old Testament history, God is teaching his people that they need to be washed. Um, One of the clearest places where you see this uh, actually is in the book of Acts, chapter 22. Paul is remembering his conversion And Paul is remembering what Ananias said to him. You remember God sent Ananias. You can imagine how afraid that man must have been to meet this guy who's a persecutor of God's people and to see him for the first time. And Ananias speaks to Paul. And he says to Paul, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism is a sacrament that symbolizes this washing, this this. And seals the washing, right? The the act itself, we saw it last week. I won't belabor this. It it does not make it so. And yet God is pleased to speak of them as though this is the case. So when you see a person baptized, remember 
that it, that it does indeed represent the very real promise of God and the covenant that he would wash away the sins of his people. When you see that water poured over this person's head, you are seeing in a symbolic form the, and the seal that is being received by this person that we so desperately need. I need to have my sins washed away. I need it to fall away from me. I need it to be taken from me by the pure blood of someone who is greater than me. That's what we're seeing when we see a baptism. Besides membership in the church and washing from sin, Scripture also speaks of baptism as being a sign and seal of regeneration. Um, regeneration means to be born again. It, ne- it means to be remade. Jesus, Jesus tells us, you must be born again. That's what he said to Nicodemus. Uh, and that's when it's being symbolized in the water, in the washing, right? So Second Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. He is talking about regeneration. He's talking about being made a new man, a new woman, a new boy, a new girl. The New Testament also speaks this way of baptism. What does Jesus say in John 3, 5? Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is he doing there? He's tying together the sign of baptism and the promise of being born again. He's putting them together. He sees them as saying the same thing. Or, or think of Paul's words in, in Titus 3, 5, where he says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He ties together these ideas of washing and regeneration together. They go hand in hand. Paul is so comfortable tying together the meaning of baptism with the application of baptism that he actually says he saved us by the washing of regeneration. This is another example of what we talked about last week. Jesus holds up the bread and says, this is my body, right? Peter says, baptism now saves you. And here Paul is, and he talks about the washing of regeneration. Again, the sign is not the thing that makes it happen. And yet, very, very, in a very real way, he's willing to speak of them together as though they are the same thing. He's assuring these baptized people of the promise of God by pointing to their baptism. I think there's something here for you, especially if you've been baptized already. When we think of our baptism, we should think of those realities that our baptism points to. If we trust in Christ, we should think of ourselves as washed and cleansed people. That's why it's important for us to reflect on the meaning of baptism. This is not just an academic exercise. This is not just a church polity thing. This is about us and and our daily walk with God. How do we wrestle with sin? How do we wrestle and struggle in our daily life? One of the tools that God is giving us, putting in our quiver, is to remember our baptism. He's calling on us to remember what it means. He's calling us to remember the promises that he's made to us. He's he's calling us to cling to those things and to love those things. Baptism also means union with Christ. Throughout the scriptures, the writers are reminding us that when we place our faith in Christ, we ourselves find ourselves united to him by faith. Every time you see the Bible speak of being in Christ, you are seeing union with Christ being set forth before you. And it is the most practical, it's the most practical doctrine I can think of in Scripture. Even though it might be a little challenging for us to understand, it's all over the place. If you look up how many times the Scripture speaks of being in Christ... 
you will just, you could read all year long and read all the verses and read the surrounding context and find yourself very busy. Um, scripture will speak of the sign, again, as if it is the thing that it signifies. And so we call that sacramental union. I want to give you an example from Romans 6.3. Paul asks a question. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he's pointing to baptism of the, of the person. He's pointing to the baptism of his readers. And he's saying, When you were baptized, you were united to Christ such that his death became your death. His death became your death. You died. You died when you were baptized because you were united to a dead man. You were united to Jesus. The Colossians 2.12 does something similar. There, Paul, is said, Paul says that these uncircumcised people have actually been circumcised. Why? Their Savior was circumcised. They've received a sign of the covenant too. They've been baptized. He tells them that. He says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith, he says, you were buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him as well. This is all union with Christ language. All of it, he's going back to the baptism as the, the focal point for why they can believe that they're united to Christ. And so in your baptism, Christian, take joy in the truth that is being communicated. You are united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. Baptism is the sign. It's the seal of that reality, but it doesn't happen apart from faith. And so here's what it does do, though. It assures you in a tangible way that it's all true. So you're able to look back at this definitive point and say, I know that it's true that if I place my faith in Christ, even today, I will be saved. I'll be united to Christ. I'll be rescued. I'll be redeemed. This is my daily call. Not just a one-time call. This is my life now because I've been marked by the sign. There are so many more things we can say about baptism, but I want to mention one more. Again, very practical and, again, from the text. Um, baptism represents union with other believers. I mentioned that it's union with Christ. Um, I hope this actually makes sense to you. When we are united to Christ and when other believers are united to Christ, we are united to Christ and we're united to each other. We have the same Christ. We have the same uh, people. We have the same family now. Look at the way that, that Paul, Paul does this. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it, it says this so well. It, it's this passage about the family of God and how different we are. And in the midst of, of all of us being so different from each other, he says that in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Well, in baptism, notice what happens. We get the same sign. We get the same seal. We, we have one baptism, remember? We're, we're all, we all receive the same Jesus. We receive the same baptism. And in that reality, we have union with each other. We have union with each other. In baptism, and what, symbolize, what it symbolizes, we become closer than a physical family. Being, being part of the family of God is deeper than your own physical blood family because we're united to each other in Christ. And Paul, Paul speaks of baptism as this meaningful sign and seal of that thing that we have together that we don't have with the rest of the world. You know, I'm not one body with 
anybody else out there who doesn't profess faith in Jesus. I'm just not. We're, we're different families. And there's something really beautiful and glorious about that too, that I can go and I can hang out with my Baptist brothers. I can go and hang out with my uh, Anglican brothers and maybe even some Methodist brothers. Uh, <laughs> like, I could go and be with them and we are one family. We don't belong to the same denomination. We don't have identical views. We don't have the same exact confession of faith. But, but we have the Lord Jesus in common and we have him and we're united to him together. There is something beautiful about that. These are all baptized people. They're all people who bear the mark of Jesus upon them, as different as they may be from us. Baptism is a passive experience. Isn't that interesting? Something gets done to us as the person who's being admitted as a member of the covenant. And, you know, I'm getting ahead of of myself a little bit because I have to get ahead of myself in all of these lessons. But that is so different from the Lord's Supper. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks, but... Uh, it's not that we observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by our own power, but the Lord's Supper does require engagement of the heart, engagement of the mind of the person receiving it. Um, you have these, these long instructions on uh, how to exercise faith as we're receiving the sacrament, um, these instructions on the wrong way to receive the Lord's Supper. And, and guess what? In Scripture, you just don't have anything like that about baptism. Right? Unlike the Lord's Supper, you don't have any passages where the apostles are like, consider uh, what your baptism means as it's happening. You need to make sure that you do this rightly. Um, there are no texts about pe- warning people about being baptized apart from faith like we find with the Lord's Supper. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 warns us of partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Guess what? There's no text like that about baptism. Um, isn't that interesting? You know, we should, we should baptize rightly. But there's no warning for the person being baptized that they need to discern what's happening in their baptism. There's no passage that's saying, you need to examine yourself before you're baptized. We have that with the Lord's Supper. Why is that? Baptism is about something happening to you, being done by God. It's not you actively participating like you find in the Lord's Supper. And this means that spiritually, scripturally speaking, baptism is, that baptism is not primarily a means of testimony by the one baptized. For years, that's what I thought it was. For years, I thought baptism is about me saying what I believe is true about me. And that's why I had to be baptized so many times. I, was, I wanted to say something about me, and I wanted, to be, I wanted it to be true when it was done. And I missed the fact that baptism is, is, is about God's testimony about who he is to us. And who he calls us to be because of who he is. Right? Baptism is something given by God. Baptism is, is rich in meaning, as you can see. And we barely scratched the surface this morning. But baptism is a great blessing. I need to end on a point of warning. Because I suspect most of you in this room have been baptized. Paul is very careful to point out that Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. And Paul made a big deal about that fact too, right? His point in doing that was that circumcision was a sign, but it wasn't salvation. Circumcision pointed to salvation, but it wasn't salvation. And the same thing is true of baptism. And I want you to take this to heart. Baptism is a blessing. It is rich. Jesus gave it to us. Of course, it is an an immense blessing. Baptism is a sign. It isn't salvation. 
Circumcision was a sign. It wasn't salvation. We should be baptized. Our children would be, we should be baptized. Preview for next week. But we should never feel secure simply because we've been baptized. There is no security apart from faith in Jesus Christ alone. Anything other than Jesus is a weak foundation to build upon. We should not teach our children to believe that they are secure simply because they have been baptized. The call goes so much deeper. You know, God tells the Israelites that he hates an uncircumcised heart. And just like God hates an uncircumcised heart, he hates an unbaptized heart. If you are outwardly baptized and you feel secure because you've been baptized, you need to remember what your baptism represents and what it is meant to drive you to. It is driving you to Jesus. And if you do not go where it's driving you to, then you have not reached him. It doesn't represent salvation apart from faith. Instead, baptism represents the covenant of grace, which is a covenant of faith. It is a covenant that calls us to believe on the Lord Jesus and to rest in the promises of God that are yes and amen in Christ alone. Let's pray. Oh God, we... We trust that you have spoken to us today. Would you be pleased, O oh God, that in our conversations, the conversations between your people today, in the meditations of our own heart in the coming weeks, cause us to reflect on your word, and like Bereans, cause us to ask whether what we have heard truly reflects the teaching of your word. Grant us your spirit so that we can know and see and believe and practice the truth. Help us to follow these sacraments to where they point. Help us not to camp out at them. Help us to repent and to believe and to be regenerated and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ by faith alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.